Hi, this is The Gathering Church in Windsor, Ontario, and I'm Pastor Garth Lino. Welcome to our podcast. I encourage you to open them to Acts chapter 15. We're continuing on in our series. We've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, so we're just going to jump right in to Acts 15, chapter, chapter 15, verse 1 to 35. This passage chronicles an important clarification for gospel living and gospel ministry. Is faith in Christ enough for salvation, or are there necessary add-ons in order to fully join the people of God? As we examine this text, we're going to see the truth affirm that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And before heading into chapter 15, it's important to get just a little bit of context of what's going on. Chapter 14, last week, Paul and Barnabas, we followed their travels. They have now returned from their journey back to Antioch, the church that sent them off after enduring tremendous hardship and also experiencing tremendous success as they preached the gospel and many people, Jews and Gentiles alike, responded by faith. And the roller coaster ride of Paul and Barnabas continues now as chapter 15 begins because now Jews arrive from down south in Judea with teachings that are contrary to the gospel that they have just finished declaring all over the place. And so this launches us into the first section of chapter 15. There's kind of three sections that we're going to look at this morning. The first is the dispute, verse 1, and I'm going to read verse 2 as well. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So Jews arrive. They say, it's not enough to only believe in Jesus. You must also follow the way of Moses, particularly circumcision. You've got, to, you've got to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. This is what they're saying. And Paul and Barnabas enter into a large dispute with them. That's what it means when it says no small dissension or debate. A large dispute. This ends up being saying, okay, now we've got to go to Jerusalem. This isn't just a matter of your opinion versus my opinion. Let's go to church headquarters in Jerusalem. Let's talk this over with the apostles, with the elders of the church. Let's get down to the bottom of this because this matters. This is a huge, crucial issue. So verse 3 to 5, it says, So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. They hear all what's happening. Everyone's excited. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers, okay, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So Paul and Barnabas, they relay everything that God has been doing. And there's joy, but then there's still this dispute. Some of the believers say, no, no, no. These Gentiles need to obey the law. They have to. In order to be real Christians, they've got to be circumcised. They've got to obey the law. This is a huge, huge deal. It needed clarification. This is absolutely fundamental to our faith. Is it Jesus 
Or is it Jesus plus? Are people saved by believing in Jesus? Or are they saved by believing in Jesus and? Huge question. How would this church handle this debate? There's potential for great division. There's potential for great disaster. What's going to happen here? We're going to look at how they handled it. And this issue actually continues to be disputed. It has throughout all of church history. It's fought over. There's arguments. And, you know, there's lots of things that individuals and churches can fight about, can argue about, can get all up in arms about that don't really matter in the grand scheme of things, whether it's the color of the carpet or paint or the, the type of the font on the screen or how long sermons are or any of those things. They don't really matter at the end of the day. But this, the, the purity and the clarity of what the gospel is, that matters. And for Paul and Barnabas, it was worth fighting for, and it should be worth fighting for for each and every single one of us. This matters. Without the true gospel, we don't have true Christianity. And so we need gospel clarity. Is the message of Jesus one of grace, or is it one of grace and works? What's going on? Well, Paul wrote about this in Ephesians chapter 2 to the church in Ephesus to explain exactly how we are saved. And he said in verse 8, listen up, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so no one may boast. Paul is saying there is one gospel message and it is a gospel of grace. God's favor, God's unmerited favor, his blessings poured out onto us in the person of Jesus Christ. The work that he did, who lived a perfect life for us. He died a sinner's death on the cross for us in our place. And then he was raised to life again so that we could be completely forgiven and and receive eternal life all to the glory of God. And it is all grace. This is Paul's point. His argument, if you were to sum up his argument in in this dispute, is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if you're sitting here this morning and you are a believer in Jesus, you, you're a Christian, whether however long you've been a Christian, I want you just to remember that this morning. It is by grace you've been saved. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. It is a gift freely given. Take time today, sometime today, just to stop and go, oh, wow, yeah, it is by grace. Thank you, Jesus, for that grace in saving me. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're not a Christian, you have yet to put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can today. You can be completely forgiven. doesn't matter what you've done or how many times you've done it. You can turn from your sin today and you can put your trust in Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done for you. And you can be saved. Other religions, other worldviews are going to say it's all about your performance. You got to do this. You got to act this way in order to earn salvation or to get eternal life. How are they going to frame it? See, God knows you can never earn it. You can never pay the debt that you owe. The very best we can do, God says, our righteousness is like filthy rags. You can't earn it. But God, in his grace, in his love, in his mercy, said, I'm going to send my son to pay the debt for you. For you. Religions say do. 
do, 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 do this. Jesus says, done. It's done. It is finished. She said, I did the work. I paid the debt for you. And now salvation is offered as a free gift for you just to simply receive. Accept that gift. Believe in Jesus if you haven't already. If you want to talk more about that today, there'd be a number of people who'd be happy to have that conversation with you, myself included. Believe in Jesus. Receive salvation by grace. Wednesday is uh, Halloween, October 31st. It's also Reformation Day. The Protestant Reformation began 501 years ago on October 31st. Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses at Wittenberg, and that started the Reformation. And issues of gospel clarity were a big deal in the fuel of the fire of the Reformation. And I'm so thankful for Martin Luther and others who were willing to dispute, willing to say, hey, this is not right, willing to clarify what the gospel is, how are we saved? Writing about our salvation, just to hammer this home, Luther once said, sin is not canceled by lawful living, for no person is able to live up to the law. The law reveals guilt and drives men to despair. Much less is sin taken away by man-invented endeavors. No, nothing can take away sin except the grace of God. This is what Paul wrote 2,000 years ago. Martin Luther reaffirmed it 500 years ago, and we need the reminders today. This is what Paul and Barnabas were disputing. This is what they were fighting for. And now this dispute, which, which again started with a, a, a smaller group of Jews, has gone to the apostles and to the elders in Jerusalem. And now we move into the section where now it's kind of a, the defense for the gospel. They have this council meeting. What's going to happen here? Verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So there's much debate. There's back and forth, listening to both sides. What's going to happen here? Not rushing into a decision. They're taking their time. But then Peter stands up. Now, his words and his thoughts expressed would carry some significant weight. He's one of the original 12 disciples. Everyone's like, ooh, okay, what's Peter going to say? And he recounts his experience from Acts chapter 10, where he preached the gospel to Cornelius and other Gentiles who heard and believed. And the Holy Spirit came on them. He said, hey, we didn't force them to become Jews in order to become Christians. They were generally converted simply by believing the message. So why would we do this now? To any new Gentiles. That's a good point. And then he mentions this idea of this unbearable yoke. What is he talking about? He's referring to the Old Testament law. The burden of trying to obey and keep all of the law contained in the Old Testament. He says, why would you insist that Gentiles now have to do all these things? When no one in Israel's history has been able to do it anyways, let alone us. 
And we all know that salvation isn't obtained by uh, keeping all of the law. Salvation is by grace, he says. We're Jews, and we know that just like Gentiles, we need the grace of God for salvation. So why would we do this? It's a powerful and freeing statement by Peter. Salvation can't be earned, guys. Let's not force this on the Gentiles. It's a gracious gift of God. And it was so important that the Jerusalem Council understood this. And it's so important that we understand this, that we get this right, because there is, in fact, no other true gospel. There's lots of other gospels out there, but there is one true gospel. Now, churches today don't tend to force circumcision on new believers or force them to believe and adhere to the Old Testament laws as a prerequisite for salvation. But there are some modern examples, I think, of of individuals and churches who add things to the gospel, maybe unintentionally or intentionally. So we might say things like, oh, unless you're baptized, you're not saved. Or we might say things like, well, unless you um, take communion, you're not really a Christian. Or unless you go through confirmation, you're not a real believer. Or unless you keep at least these commandments, you're not actually a Christian. Or unless you're part of this specific denomination, you're not a believer. We have a tendency to hold on to these things like merit badges or little accessories to our faith. We, we declare, I know I'm a Christian because I was baptized. I know I'm a Christian because I give in the offering plate. I know I'm a Christian because I go every week. But is that how we know we're a Christian? Is that how we become Christians? Paul wrote in Romans 6.23, just a beautiful summary of the gospel. The wages of sin, the consequences, the result of our rebellion against God is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus and baptism. That's not what it says. In Christ Jesus and confirmation. Not what it says. Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Period. That's it. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Baptism, communion, giving, um, pursuing holy living. These are all good things, but they are not means to salvation. They are meant to be evidences of salvation, evidence of a life that's been changed by Jesus Christ, evidence of, I have believed, now I learn to walk in these ways. And as the debate, the defense continues, now James speaks. To be clear, this is James who's the brother of Jesus, not James the brother of John. That James was, was killed by Herod a couple chapters earlier. So if Peter garnered some attention from the crowd. James really would. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem at this time. This would be like Steve Jobs when he was alive. This would be like Steve Jobs coming to the Apple uh, convention to talk about all the new product launches. And it's like, oh, everybody quiet. Steve Jobs is here. Now we're going to really listen. And what does James say? He actually agrees with Peter in verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. He calls Peter Simon. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. So he goes back to a prophet, to the word of God, particularly Amos chapter 9, to argue the point that Gentiles are actually to be brought into the family of God. So he quotes Amos 9, says, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my 
name. He's saying God's plan from the beginning was always to include Gentiles into his people. And we're now just seeing it. He's done this. He's worked by his grace to bring these people in. And so there's agreement. The council agrees. All right. It is by faith. It is by grace. We're not going to force circumcision. We're not going to force the Old Testament on these Gentiles. Amazing. But now a decision needs to be made. How are we going to practically roll this out? Because there's still a lot of cultural differences between Jews and Gentiles. How are we going to make sure that those relationships stay strong in light of this? And so he rolls out his decision, verse 19 to 20. James says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. And you're kind of like, what? What is going on here? I thought they just agreed that it's salvation is by grace and it's through faith and we're not going to ask the Gentiles to do anything. And then there's this list, right? We're not going to force circumcision, but don't eat meat without the blood being drained out of it. What, what is happening here? Why is he identifying these certain behaviors that Gentiles now need to avoid? Well, what's happening is the doctrinal issue has been clarified. They all agree what the gospel is. But now... James offers up a cultural compromise. James' solution here is to try to eliminate any unnecessary offense between Gentiles and Jews as they fellowship together. He's not forcing Jewish culture on the Gentiles. He's just saying, these things will help you. If you avoid these things, do these things, it's going to help you as you relate to your Jewish brothers. Because a huge aspect of fellowshipping together is food, eating together. It's really hard, though, to share meals together when you have vastly different opinions and beliefs about how the food should be prepared or where you should get it from. And so he's saying, hey, Gentiles, since you know that the Jews have a long history with specific food requirements and traditions for their sake and for the sake of unity, avoid these things and it's going to go well with you. That's what this is about here. Jews were still all over the world and they were hearing the law taught all over the place. He said, be sensitive to this. Love your brothers. This is a great example of what Paul writes about in Romans 14. It's forsaking personal liberties for the sake of others. He says in verse 19 to 21, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So modern examples today uh, could include not having or serving alcohol when you're with people that you know are against drinking. Hey, I know that you're, you don't like to drink, so I'm not going to. Okay? Or not ordering a meat lover's pizza when your vegetarian friend is over. Right? Just, it's, it's acting in love, being sensitive to people's beliefs. It's not a doctrinal issue. It's not a gospel issue. It's a love issue. Say, so, hey, find ways to express love to your brothers and sisters in the Lord. So I had the opportunity to lead a trip to Guatemala with a number of students a few years ago. And they wrote to us saying, hey, any of the girls that come, make sure that their shorts go down to their knees. And if they wear skirts or dresses, that they are long like even down to their ankles kind of thing. And the girls are like, what? I don't even have 
shorts that long. Like, what's, what's going on? And they were kind of upset at first. And I said, no, you got to understand. Culturally, this is their view of, of, of modest dress. We are going into their culture, so we need to conform to that so that we can have an effective witness and not just be a bull in the china shop who's like, well, who cares? And so they did, oh, okay, I get it now. So they wore the longer shorts, they wore the longer dresses so that we were able to minister effectively and not have unnecessary stumbling blocks. Now, why does James emphasize sexual immorality in there? Well, the Gentile world had vastly different standards of sexual conduct than the Jews. And so James uses this opportunity to communicate that sexual Purity is meant to be a distinguishing factor of those who serve the Lord. Sexual purity is meant to be a distinguishing factor of those who serve the Lord. Again, this is not him saying, you must be completely pure in regards to sexuality in order to become a Christian. No, he's saying, now that you have become a Christian, now you learn to walk in sexual purity as you honor God with your body. And that's why he wrote that. So, Paul and Barnabas, they get this letter, it's all agreed about, and they head back to Antioch, and a couple of Jews go with them, Silas and Judas, and they bring that official letter, and so that these Jews come with to verify, so that they can't just say, oh yeah, Paul and Barnabas just made it up, and they wrote a letter, and they brought it back. No, they, they verify the whole thing, and they bring it back to the church. Verse 31 to 33, the response now. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who sent them. So they received the letter. And there's rejoicing because of its encouragement. Hey, the church has decided circumcision is not required. Old Testament law is not required in order to become a Christian. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and it always will be. I love that it says that the church in Antioch sent Judas and Silas off in peace. This whole issue could have just been a nightmare. It could have just resulted in in just a schism and, and, and division, all to the glory of God. Peace. They sent them off in peace. We can all learn from Acts 15 a little bit on how to address and resolve personal issues and church-wide issues in peaceful and Holy Spirit-led ways. It doesn't mean that things didn't get heated in the moment. Remember, no small dissension, much debate. There was probably a lot of intensity in that debate. But they acted in love and respect for each other throughout the debate. They looked to the Word of God for guidance and support. And then they look to compromise where possible without violating the truth of God's word so that the kingdom of God could continue to expand and so the message of Jesus would remain untainted. Just imagine if those were our goals when we had conflict or disagreement with somebody. And we say, wait, before we get any further, what's best for the kingdom of God? Instead of just what's best for me right now and me expressing my opinion and proving that I'm right because I want to be right. What if we ask that in our disputes? How will this issue advance the message of Jesus? I think that would change a lot of our debates and disputes with one another and within the church. And this is what we're trying to do here at this church, 
The leadership is, is committed to teaching and preaching the one true gospel of grace given by the one true God who sent his one and only son to be the one and only way of salvation. That's what we're committed to. And we are going to do our best to fight to maintain the purity and clarity of the gospel. And we'll be honest, there are a lot of fights that we're not going to get involved in. But, like Paul and Barnabas, we will fight to ensure that people know, without a shadow of a doubt, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We believe that here, and we believe the gospel is worth fighting for. And I hope you believe that as well. Let's pray together. Father God, we want to take this time to say thank you for sending your son Jesus. We were lost, we were helpless, rebellious, and yet you intervened. By your grace, you sent your son to die for us, to pay the price that we could be forgiven, that we could be set free, that we could join your people, that we could have eternal life. Thank you for the gospel of grace. Thank you for working through people like the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and others throughout history to preserve the gospel. Thank you that we can open your word today. We can read it and understand it. And I pray that your spirit would fill us so that we can apply it. And I ask that our church, yes, here at the Gathering Windsor, but, but, and then every church would be churches that, that know and love and declare the true gospel. Bring reformation again if needed. And Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit, each and every one of us, that we can walk in love when disputes arise, not if, but when. Would you work to change our hearts so that we truly desire your kingdom to expand here and globally? Give us a, a burden to love your gospel, to have a gospel filter when issues arise. Thank you for your love and your patience with us as we try to serve you, as we try to live this out. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.